There's a code of silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on.
by going into the site, seeing how you can buy the products I have for sale of books, as you say, uh, discs and so on. And you can also uh, donate as well. Personal checks are good from the U.S. to Canada. And uh, there's also PayPal. You can order books as well through PayPal. Just send me a separate email. Outside the Americas, you got to use MoneyGram, Western Union, or PayPal again, or straight cash. It's up to yourselves. The cash does come through. And that cuts out the guy with the podgy fingers who gets fatter with every depression he causes. Uh, those who get the disc burned and passed to them, I'll give you the address when I come back from this break as to how to get in touch with me. Back in a moment. is cutting through the matrix just finishing off by saying that uh, those who get the disc burned and passed to them to play on their CD players guys who don't use computers there's a lot out there uh, can get in touch with me at Alan Watt W-A-T-T Site 41 Box 4 Estaire which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E Ontario, Canada the postal code is P as in Peter the number 3, E as in Elizabeth, the number 4, N as in Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. I've talked quite a lot in the past about reality and how we're born into what we take for granted as, a, as the only system that could possibly be, simply because it exists, and simply because your parents accept that it exists. Uh, they, they don't tell you, uh, by the way, uh, son or daughter, uh, all of this structure is pretty well fake and go into the details because they don't know. They, they've adapted very well to Plato's cave, the one that's been authorized and designed by those who have the power structures, who own the power structures. They are the power. And Lenin and other people before him talked about this, how... In different nations, you're born into a culture. You take the norms of that culture, no matter how bizarre they appear to other cultures, and it's all quite natural to you. Therefore, they understood perfectly well a long time ago, a long, long time ago, uh, that you could alter culture and make pretty well anything normal as long as they all adapt to it at the same time. And that is what happens to us. We're born in the updated Plato's cave for a particular generation scientifically designed as Lord Bertrand Russell said himself and they were scientifically indoctrinated at school in a specific way which we were not even aware of at the time there's many different um, psychological techniques used on you at school and, um, and then you grow up to be supposedly a good or hopefully a good productive tax paying citizen that's what they want from you uh, meanwhile, after school, you're into work, you want to relax at the end of work, so you get entertained. And that's where entertainment takes over from your education. It still is a form of education or indoctrination, and it gives you predictive programming through comedy sketches and through dramas, soap operas, 
and in fact uh, I've mentioned here articles where a special uh, psychologists were brought in to, to work on soap operas for certain countries to alter the attitudes of the women who would watch to upgrade them to an extent and uh, that's official so there's nothing you can really watch out there even even your all your sci-fi's especially science fiction uh, they're all predictive programming of what's to come basically and I've lost count of the of the disaster movies that have been churned out for years and years and years all talking about the end of things if we don't change our ways and uh, the, the global warming or flooding or freezing or it keeps changing and, and alternating and uh, this is predictive programming therefore in predictive programming if it gets into your mind about something uh, with fiction you don't realize that the idea is now planted in your head so therefore when it starts to mention it in reality and seeing this is coming that's coming it seems plausible to you because it's far easier to put an idea across to someone who will remember the idea if it's attached to high excitement or, and drama and emotion it becomes imprinted in your mind in fact really fiction is far superior to non-fiction and straight dry newscasts or dictatorial stuff from the heads of governments it's, it's far more effective to alter behavior uh, using very simple techniques in fact as long as there's emotion tied in with it and some fear if you don't go this way uh, especially nowadays with television they can show you fictional accounts of what could happen and that's all you need very simple techniques because we're under what they call global governance we have been our whole lives so were our parents they didn't know it either because they always need you to be national to go off and fight the last wars when, when required even before the UN was mentioned pretty well daily on the media uh, when they had the, the conflict in Bosnia suddenly all you heard every day was the United Nations, United Nations, United Nations and I, I knew they were bringing them up to their proper place now in the consciousness, the psyche of the public and I told people at the time you're going to start hearing this every daily now on newscasts from, from now till you die because that was the agenda to bring it up to public consciousness as they call it till you accept it as being some kind of official body even though you don't elect it and you've got to look into the fact as well that it's a, it's a non-democratic institution look at the titles they give people their military titles director general supreme commander etc etc these are military titles which no one out there questions in the military you, you don't have a democratic institution it's not democratic and neither is the United Nations and neither is the world order that's been built up around us quietly, steadily, Fabian style step by step by step this massive network across the planet that unlike the, the, the socialism that people have been taught uh, with all the, the, the nonsense about peasants uprisings and so on uh, these, 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 and the socialism was designed by very very rich people and they became the richest people on the planet by design and again by intrigue to be the masters of the world this world system because economics is one of the, the prime goals in warfare you've got to use economic warfare 
it's far more effective than any other kind of warfare once you have the, the whole world system borrowing from the same organization from the United Nations group under that umbrella and you'd understand too the, the, the socialist international and how it was based on a, a military agenda with military tactics and superior commanders and all the rest of it that's why they have these military titles one of their uh, specialized groups is called the World Trade Organization most people don't hear much about it and that's by design too but uh, when it was signed quite a few years back they brought it out with the GATT Treaty the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs but it was much more to do with than just trade and tariffs the World Trade Organization put out thousands of pages and all the countries signed it on queues as they sign everything if you notice and it, it enabled all the big corporations, international corporations with their headquarters in Europe and the Americas to move lock, stock and barrel over to China they also set up the deal that the taxpayers of all those nations uh, would pay the losses of those corporations as they were moving over and setting up in China for up to 10 years and that could be extended if required the World Trade Organization talks about free trade this great, great tenet of the United Nations but it's not free trade at all in fact it's limited trade because if there's two guys selling the same products uh, they will take their members the, the person who's a member of their big club they'll get the contract and you won't it's to limit trade to stop competition in fact and it also is, is a group that, that deals with how much labor has to be transported from country to country. Free flow of goods and labor. Authorized labor. But uh, one of the, the characters, uh, the woman, in fact, the guy who's the, the director general, as they call him, director general, big chutzpah, Pascal Lamy, which is the same as Lamy, I guess. I've seen both versions used in this name. But here's his doctor or DG, Director General Pascal Lamy of the World Trade Organization. And it's from their own organization, it's a site basically I'm getting this info from. It talks about world government recently. And I'll put these links up on my site at the end of the show. He says, the reality is that the end of the Cold War. And he lies off, his, off the bat because they all knew what it was planned caught everyone by surprise it was the end of a bipolar world he says a new world order was being born and yet there was not enough thinking and discussion about its governance this is his term they use now governance not government governance structures there was never a Bretton Woods conference or a San Francisco conference as they had after World War II and during and after World War II but they didn't have that post-1989 now listen to what he says as a result global governance structures did not adjust he's also admitting that the Bretton Woods conference in the San Francisco United Nations conference in fact in 46 I think the conference in San Francisco was part of the setting up of the global governance structure and he's claiming that after the wall went down this government's governance structure failed to act properly when the Berlin Wall came down 
says here, global challenges need global solutions, and these can only come with the right global governance, which today, 20 years later after the wall came down, remain, remains too weak. And yet there is a place on earth where new forms of global governance have been tried following World War II. And he says, such as in Europe. Now it is true, in 48 they set up the structure to unite Europe and lied to the public all along the way as prime ministers of every country in Europe signed agreements annually to further bind them or tie them together, they kept saying, closer ties. And then at the very end of it announced to the public, oh by the way, you're now under a European government. So that was part of the setting up of part of the global government back after this break. through the matrix a reading from an article by Director General Pascal Lamy of the World Trade Organization this unelected body again that decides who trades with whom and who doesn't it will eventually be responsible for deciding who can go and live in another country and who can't by the way just as it is control of the free flow of goods and authorised labour under the United Nations. I go on to say here, and yet there's a place on earth where new forms of global governance have been tried following World War II in Europe, some of the European Union. Uh, so that's what it was all about. It was a part of global governance. They wanted a, a three trading blocks basically, uh, United Europe, exactly as Karl Marx said, and remember too he started up the, the first international, which the second one is still on the go today with the Prime Ministers of Britain being part of it. So you're under socialism you see, and the Americas were to follow with United Americas, they were to unite together, and then you were to get a United uh, Pacific Rim region. That, and of course the Council on Foreign Relations had a special department dealing with that for the last 80 years 80 years according to Professor Carl Quigley and you'll all be under a world government of course at the end of it all so all this unification is all part of a very old plan by the socialists who believed that technocrats the specialists should rule the world and the people would just do as they're told basically an authoritarian type of society and that's really what it's all about. It says here, this is more than half a century ago, Jean Monnet said, the sovereign nations of the past can no longer provide a framework for the resolution of our present problems, and the European community itself is no more than a step towards the organizational forms of tomorrow's world. That's the three-part trading box, you see. This was as valid then as it is now. Then Mr. Lemmy goes on to say, or let me. What do I mean by global governance? For me, global governance describes the system we set up, we set up, to assist human society to achieve its common purpose. That's right out of uh, uh, the First International's manifesto. To set up, a, uh, to assist humanity to achieve its common purpose. So they have their, about their society as a common purpose. And right out of the same manifesto is this, in a sustainable manner, because they were into sustainability then in the 1800s. 
Says that is with equity and justice. <laughs> they decide what equity and justice is, by the way. Growing interdependence requires that our laws, our social norms, our values, the social norms, values, is your whole culture, family units, everything. Our mechanisms for framing human behavior be examined, debated, understood, and operated together as coherently as possible means altered totally. <laughs> this is what would provide the basis for effective sustainable development in its economic, social and environmental dimensions. Then he goes on to say this, whether public or private, because that was always the debate between the two systems of socialism. Some wanted total uh, state ownership of all means of production, while the other group thought it's possible to intertwine the two. And the Fabians eventually opted for the latter. After a long, long time, they opted for the latter. But it's really the multi-billionaires that they set up in office who fund them. The, 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 the parallel governments made up by the big international bankers who have the foundations, the, the private philanthropic foundations, like Rockefellers, who really run it. You see, Whether public or private, governance needs to provide leadership, the incarnation of vision, of political energy, of drive. It also needs to provide legitimacy, which is essential to ensure ownership over decisions which lead to change. Change is good, right? Change is good. Ownership to pre prevent the inbuilt bias towards resistance, to modify the status quo. To modify the status quo and prevent inbuilt bias towards resistance. They're always looking out for reactions and they have massive think tanks to find ways to to neutralize it. A, legit a legitimate governance system, it's probably global governance here, must also ensure efficiency. It must bring about results for the benefit of the people. Which people is that? Uh, finally, a governance system must be coherent. Compromises would need to be found over objectives which often may contradict one another. And believe me, socialism is full of contradictions. It cannot be about the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing. Or even worse, it cannot be about knowingly moving them in different directions. That's all they do. Specific ch challenges of global governance. As with any system of power within the nation-state, what is needed is good global governance. A system which of offers a good balance between leadership, efficiency and legitimacy, and which ensures coherence. What then are the specific challenges of global governance? first challenge stems from the difficulty to identify leadership. Who is a leader? Should it be a superpower, a gathering of national leaders selected by whom, or should it be an international organization? As to classify legitimacy, this entails citizens choosing their representatives collectively by voting for them, but it also relies on the political capacity of the system to bring forward public discourse and proposals that produce coherent majorities and provide citizens with the feeling, with the feeling, <laughs> I like that part, provides the citizens with the feeling that they are participating in a debate. All you have to do is feel that you are because you really ain't. Back with more after this break. listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix. It's quite amazing, too, because even when you've got these links, then I'll leave it at the end of the show on my website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Uh, you show people this stuff, and they still won't believe you. They'll say, well, I can see what they're saying, but they don't really mean it. That, that's generally what you hear there. They don't really mean it. Or it can't be that important or be on mainstream news every day. That, that's how they've been trained to think, you see. They'll believe anything that is on mainstream, but they won't believe um, anything they see with their own eyes, even, or can check for themselves. If it's not on mainstream, they'll, they'll dismiss it. It's like Wag the Dog. It shows you the technique in that movie, Wag the Dog. If it's on TV, it must be true. That, that's how simple it, the, the thing is. So Brzezinski was right. And when he says that people will be unable to reason for themselves, they'll expect the reasoning to be done by the mainstream media. That's happened. That's actually happened. But then uh, Lamy goes on to complain about uh, the, the, the fact they'll have to really convince the public that this is, they're somehow part of something, because global governance means you're remote from the people. And they are. I mean, these people in England, dependent on this place in Brussels for all the decision-making, so far removed from them. Well, I think what it will be for this complete global government under the United Nations. And, and uh, you have a complaint to make through multiple layers of bureaucracy till it reaches some person you'll, you'll never even know their name off at the top somewhere, some lieutenant governor or something, or grand general putzpah, and uh, it's lost in the waste, isn't it? It'll go in the wastebasket. It's interesting, too, I, I've often, often said, you know, politics is just the sham, is all this progresses, this whole global government idea. And everybody who's chosen for politics is, uh, has been vetted by the masters before they even hear their names and before they're put forward. That's why when big bills come through with thousands of pages, they just sign it automatically. And no one, even they couldn't, if they had months to read it, they'd, you still couldn't get through it. So they're given about a week to read something, or a couple of days, and they, they, they don't even bother looking at it, they just pass it automatically. And every country is the same now. So they're all bought and paid for. They have to be, or you wouldn't get into politics. And I've often said, you know, left and right wing, which bunch of millionaires do you want to vote for? They've got so much in common with you, don't they? <laughs> Here's from Politico, a magazine called Politico. Uh, it's the 11th of the 6th, 2009. It says, talk about bad timing. As Washington reels from the news of 10.2% unemployment, the Center for Responsible Politics is out with a new report describing the wealth of members of Congress. Among the highlights, 237 members of Congress are millionaires. The time they leave will be billionaires, by the way, with all the deals they make with lobbyists. It says that's 44% of the body, compared to about 1% of Americans overall. And remember, too, they only have to put down a fraction of their income. They're given an exception that the rest of the citizenry you're not given. I read that article a few weeks back. Anyway, it says the CRP says California Republican Representative Darrell Issa is the richest lawmaker on Capitol Hill with a net worth estimated at about $251 million. Next in line is Representative um, or Republican Jane Harmon, a Democrat actually, California, worth about $244.7 million. I think it's a whole list. Senator Herb Cole, Wisconsin, worth about $214.5 million. Senator Mark Warner, uh, 
is worth about 209.7 million. Senator John Kerry uh, worth about 208.8 million. He's worth a lot more than that now, according to who he's married to, I think. All told, at least seven lawmakers have net worths greater than $100 million, according to the Center's 2008 figures. Many Americans probably have a sense that members of Congress aren't hurting, even if their government salary alone is in the six figures, much more than most Americans make, said CRP spokesman Dave Leventhal. What we see through these figures is that many of them have riches well beyond that salary, supplemented with securities, stock holdings, property, and other investments. And a few weeks ago, two I read about all the investing they're into, such as the military stuff and all the rest of it that's uh, high, very profitable these days. And that's why they love to keep the wars going. It's awfully good for their own pockets. This is the CRP numbers are somewhat rough estimates. Lawmakers are required to report their financial information in broad ranges of figures, so it's impossible to pin down their dollars with precision. The CRP uses the midpoint in the ranges to build its estimates. Senators' estimated median reportable worth sunk to about $1.79 million from $2.27 million in 2007. The House's median income was significantly lower and also sank, bottoming out at $622,254 from $724,258 in 2007. But CRP's analysis suggests that some lawmakers did well for themselves between 2007 and 2008, even as many Americans lost jobs and saw their savings and their home values plummet, while a lot of them lost their homes altogether. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell gained about $9.2 million. Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma gained about $3 million. Senator Daniel Inui, Hawaii, had an estimated 2.6 million gain, and Richard Shelby from uh, from uh, 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 Alabama gained about 2.8 million. Some, law some lawmakers have profited from investments in companies that have received federal bailouts. Well, of course they have. They're all in on the game, eh? Dozens of lawmakers are invested in Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, of course they are, and Bank of America. Among, among executive branch officials, CRP says the richest is Securities and Exchange Commission Chairwoman Mary L. Shapiro, with a net worth estimated at $26 million. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is next, worth an estimated $21 million. That's a lot more than that, actually. President Barack Obama is the sixth wealthiest, worth about an estimated $4 million. Vice President, uh, charitable works are very good for you, aren't they? Vice President Joe Biden has often tagged himself as an original blue-collar man. The CRP backs him up, putting his net worth at just $27,000. The rest will be some other country, and I know which one it will be. Then he goes on about the ones who are the worst off. So they've got more, they have to see more lobbyists, these ones, these other ones, and they names them all. And no doubt they'll be very, very busy seeing lobbyists so they can also come out with lots of millions of dollars. And that's just the way it is, isn't it? In every country. That's the way it is. It's utterly corrupt. <laughs> but there you go. You know... Uh, I understand how young guys are and how they go into the military. Most guys go into the military 
not because of any ideal to serve the country. It's like a, they have to say that. They have to say that when they're getting interviewed or to the, to the public later on to serve their country. And they go in because they're getting nowhere in life. They are a nobody. They're that awkward age where they don't really know who they are yet. You see. And all they do know is that this, being a nobody, they can suddenly be a somebody and people give you respect with a uniform. Because the elite have made it so in the culture, they do get respect. But then, as I say, you, you get the people who really use them for geopolitics. The young guys really don't care where they go and fight or, or who they're fighting. They really, really don't care. They, and peacetime armies are professional mercenaries. That's really what they are. And uh, I've even watched some of the, the, the CBC documentaries on... We've got a lot of them in Canada, they're public relations and propaganda. And at least some of them are honest enough. They're career soldiers and they go wherever they're sent. There's no, there's no political or moral decisions involved in it and how they think about it. They, they go and kill who they're told to go and kill. But young guys go in thinking they're immortal and they'll never get killed. And they want to be part of a team. They want to belong. Remember, they're coming out of the classroom, basically. You want to belong with your peer group. Going into another peer group, you want to belong so badly. And um, they go along with everything they're told to do. They go where they're told to go. And they haven't matured at all. And here they are, really. They're not playing cowboys and Indians in the forest anymore. They're actually playing the same kind of thing with real guns. You know? So understand the mentality and how they can go and go through that and what happens. And they don't need much propaganda to get them going. Very basic, basic propaganda is good enough for them. In fact, what's amazing, even on the, the you know they have the Veterans Day uh, going on right now. In fact, and Memorial Day across the British Commonwealth countries at the same time. When you hear these these old fellows speaking, they'll, they'll talk and they'll give you the original propaganda that they were given at that time. That's what come, they've never gone beyond it, they've never looked into the causes of the backing, the financial backing of the wars or anything else. They just come out with the original propaganda, it's imprinted in their memory. That's all they can come out with. And remember what Kissinger said. Kissinger talked about some the military, what they really are, knowing, knowing all the things I've just said. Uh, Kissinger said that uh, the soldiers and the military are just dumb stupid animals to be used for foreign policy that's what they're really fighting out there is for foreign policy that these guys are unaware of the long term goals completely unaware of it what it's all about I see that ExxonMobil just got, got given the big honeypots over in Iraq they were awarded the big new shiny taxpayer funded from America of course uh, refineries over there that's what they're over there for. And much more to come in the future that will still be going on into other territories after they're out of the military. Long-term geopolitical strategies. And that's why Kissinger called them dumb, stupid animals. Because they're quite happy doing what they're doing and being proud of wearing that uniform and belonging to a peer group and feeling strong and immortal and running about with a gun in their hands and getting praised when they go back home unless they're sick and then they're just a mist and, and they're a leper to society especially the, the military they want nothing to do with them and so many of them do come back sick because of the inoculations they've been given 
or the depleted uranium. But I understand why they join. I do understand why they join. <clears throat> and you never fight for what you think you're fighting for. If you are moralistic and you want to believe in something, you're never fighting for what you think you're fighting for. Professor Carl Quigley went into Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, very important two books, where he fills in what you were fighting for, even in the last major wars, the, the world wars as they call them. And he goes into the fact that the group, the Royal Institute of International Affairs and Council of Foreign Relations, were setting up the wars. They wanted the world to come to its knees for global government. That's what it was about. Look into the crimes and punishment of IG Farb and see who funded the setup of Adolf Hitler. The same guys who set up the funding of the Bolshevik Revolution, by the way. Anthony Sutton, Professor Anthony Sutton, wrote books about them. Look them up. They're fantastic books, well documented. No guesswork there. All documented stuff. So here's one of the poor guys in World War II who went off to fight totalitarianism. You know, that are the socialist countries, which at that time they called fascist. And it's from Mail Online. 11th of November 2009 <coughs> war hero at the age of 94 vows to hand back medals to, to Prime Minister Brown in Britain after being denied winter fuel allowance I hope you understand this, all this stuff to do with, with fuel and energy and carbon taxes, they're already doing all this stuff in Britain, if you're, if you're dependent on the government, believe you me, you're under their thumb even for your fuel this is a 94-year-old war hero today pledged to hand back his medals after the government refused to give him his winter fuel allowance. Now listen to this. Bob McGowan is told he could not claim the £300 subsidy because he moved into his apartment just one day too late to qualify. There's bureaucracy. There's socialism for you. Buy the book, eh? Despite his age and the six years he spent fighting for his country across Europe, Asia and Africa, the pension service said it could not show flexibility. Actually, they don't really like, see, they really don't like the military. They make it quite plain they don't like the military. They'll use them all the time, to the maximum, but they really don't like them. Mr. McGowan of Portsmouth has been waging a battle of principle with Whitehall ever since he was turned down for the fuel support in 2007. There's a lot of people younger than him getting it. He wants an apology from Gordon Brown. Well, good luck with the Fabian. See, you're fighting the wrong guys, old fella. Don't you understand you're fighting the wrong guys? Because the real commies and so on, the communists, you see, were back home in Britain in the Fabian Society. With their partners, the big bankers that formed the Milner Group that created the Royal Institute for International Affairs, or CFR. And he goes on about his career. He got the Burma Star, the Africa Star. Burma was a hellish place to be in, but he was there. He was in North Africa, too. And... Uh, you know, five, five years in the military. He was overseas for six years altogether. That's what they do with you. They don't give a damn about you at all. Same with the sick ones too. They say they're coming back from, from the Gulf areas. Still, they're just dismissed. They're lepers. Suddenly, become lepers to the military. They just wish you'd just disappear or die off. Same thing. And when you see what's happening too. 
What's the point? See, whatever you fight for or you think you're fighting for is always a lie. It's for the big boy's agenda. Here's an article here. Uh, I think it's from the London Evening Standard. It says, um, a citizen snooper is recruited to spy on Londoners. This is what you expect in totalitarian, totalitarian countries. This is what these guys went off supposedly thinking they were going to fight against. It's all here. It's all back home. Because that's where it was really working quietly all that time. London Council is recruiting 2,000 residents to report on their neighbours and join a growing network of citizen snoopers in the capital, London. Neighbourhood champions, that's kind of like Obama's bunch, eh, will be expected to pass on evidence of graffiti dumping their, their, their garbage, unquote, you know, where you shouldn't be, litter and excessive noise. They could eventually be trained to report child abuse, domestic violence, racial harassment and other hate crimes. God, George Orwell had this all in 1984 in the, in the book. We scared the children. You be scared the children when they point their fingers at you. The plan is expected to be approved this week in Harrow. The council says the scheme, which has the backing of the Metropolitan Commander for the borough, will increase pride in the community. Pride in the community. But critics today feared over civil liberties, warning that it is the latest example of a surveillance society. Are you kidding? It's a la You've had it, folks. You've had it. You're in the middle of it. Stalin would be proud. Back with more after this break. through the matrix and we've got a caller there from Florida it's Brandon are you there Brandon yeah I am hi Alan yes hi uh, I was uh, going through some of your blurb and um, um, I guess I get kind of confused uh, with some of the um, I guess some of the connections you make with uh, with words the English language like you're going I think you're mentioning about um, the example I'm going to give is about justice how you saying it was like they uh, put you on ice, just ice. Yeah. Um, yes, but see, when you when you hold someone, you put them on ice. Yeah. yeah. There's like um, justice itself. You said mm -hmm. you said uh, justice was like jousting. It's from jousting. That's right. It's a jousting tournament with the two champions. See, the peasantry could not defend themselves. You weren't allowed to get on a horse and fight a knight. Only knights could fight knights, and so you had to find a champion, an actual sir or a lord to speak on the peasantry's behalf and he do that by having a joust with the, the opponent and that's why you've got lawyers here and that's why you're told to shut up and let the lawyer speak for you you're a peasant you're not allowed to speak there <laughs> yeah so like I mean uh, this isn't like these aren't like your own um, opinions or anything you obviously got this from yeah you can find it in, in dictionaries yeah and, and it's good too, it's good if you go through that. See, they've, they've changed the meaning of words generation by generation. And when you get the really old dictionaries, they're absolutely fascinating. Uh, when you get the old, uh, complete uh, collection of dictionaries, even in the 1800s, there were, there were volumes of them, like a set of encyclopedias just on words. And like George Orwell said, uh, over the years, in 1984, it comes down to a thin, thin book, so it's linguistic minimalism until we can't even express ourselves anymore. 
really. And uh, it's all based on a cultic or Masonic language. Or and there's Masonic uh, wording, there's capitalistic wording all through it. So there's anagrams galore. Um, they love uh, that kind of stuff um, and how they string sentences together with different words and how they'll, they'll pick the first two letters etc and every word and then you get another one and other little hidden uh, funny messages to each other and um, that's been very very common over the years yeah yeah I actually kind of find myself uh, doing um, like just kind of um, reading into things a lot more like I'm, my mind's kind of yeah up now to speed this kind of I'm not really quite comfortable with it, even myself, because uh, mm -hmm. now my mind's kind of always probing everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I know you're, you said that you got to figure out ways to kind of calm yourself. You can't go too fast. That's right. You, you can get excited. And it's exciting when you catch on to all the little, the little uh, games that are going on. Uh, and it can be fun for a while, but don't, don't let it uh, overtake you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I made a, I made a trip to Honduras a couple of years ago, and it just struck me right away. I just like being around people where I didn't understand. Yes. <laughs> I think I kind of, it hit me that the English language seems unnatural, the actual language. Yeah, it is unnatural. It is unnatural, it seems, yeah. It just seems like there's, it's, it's not, it doesn't flow smoothly. It seems mm -hmm. robotic almost. It is. And ultimately, um, when they put it together, and they really they got it out to the public by using Shakespeare, or this, I always see the group called Shakespeare because it wasn't one guy, and he introduced I think 180,000 words into the language at the same time as he put out the King James Bible, and they literally were updating the language. But now they've just minimalized it until it's just a basic worker bee language for basic working and no more. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it just seems like a inherently evil language. I, I don't I hate to say that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But thanks for. I'm not, I'm not uh, off when I say that. That's actually true. I know, I know. But thanks for calling. And from Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your God's go with you.